The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my pleasure to welcome Patsy Katsos. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She holds two impressive nutrition degrees from Cornell and Boston University in nutrition. Patsy specifically helps patients with digestive health issues. So, for example, her patients have conditions including irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, reflux, and celiac disease. And her specialty has really been helping people live with those conditions and tailor their diets so that they can have meaningful and productive lives. She is the author of a terrific book called IBS Free at Last. IBS, of course, stands for Irritable Bowel Syndrome. The subtitle is simply Change Your Carbs, Change Your Life with the FODMAP Elimination Diet. Patsy, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Well, you are one of our national experts, perhaps even international experts, on the issue of a special diet to control conditions of our GI tract. And the diet that you focus on is the FODMAP elimination diet. And I'd like to talk about that. It sounds complicated, but I know you're going to make it easy to understand for us. Tell me something first, though. How did you get involved in this area of dietetics? Well, since I was diagnosed myself with ulcerative colitis in 1985, I've been very interested in anything to do with nutrition therapy for digestive health issues. And then many years later, one of my children was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And I began to investigate nutrition for digestive health even more deeply at that time. Mm -hmm. But you focused on irritable bowel syndrome. Are there similarities in these conditions? They have some symptoms in common, but they're very different. Okay, well, Um, why don't we just talk a little bit about maybe some key features of these different conditions and how the diet might help. So let's start with irritable bowel syndrome. What is it? People who have irritable bowel syndrome have a gut that just does not function correctly even though there doesn't appear to be anything medically wrong with them. They might have diarrhea or constipation, bloating, gas, or abdominal pain. Okay. And then how about somebody with ulcerative colitis? What kind of symptoms might they present with? They might have some of those same symptoms, but in addition, they usually have alarm symptoms, such as bloody stools, fevers, unintentional weight loss, or abnormal lab values. Okay. And those abnormal lab values would probably be indicative or the result of the loss yes. of fluids? If they, well, if they have malabsorption related oh, to sure. their Crohn's or colitis, they might have nutrient deficiencies that would show up in their lab work, for example, anemia. Oh, sure. Okay. 
And then tell me, what is Crohn's disease and how does that present? Crohn's disease is an inflammatory disease that can affect any part of the gastrointestinal tract from top to bottom. And the, the patient has areas of ulceration and inflammation that come and go somewhat. Okay. Now, the book that you have focused on, IBS, Free at Last, Change Your Carbs, Change Your Life, focuses on a particular kind of carbohydrate, actually several different kinds of carbohydrate. Is this diet then appropriate for all of those conditions that you mentioned, or is it specific to irritable bowel syndrome? Most of the research has been done around using the diet for irritable bowel syndrome, but any patient that has those functional symptoms that I mentioned, the gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, etc., can often get some mileage out of the FODMAP elimination diet as far as symptom management goes, even though it would be just too much to expect a low FODMAP diet to treat or cure directly a case of Crohn's or colitis. Okay. So what does FODMAP stand for? And that we should let our listeners know that's F as in food, O-D-M-A-P. Okay, got some big words coming up here, but don't let them scare you away because understanding what these particular words mean isn't really all that important for actually eating a low FODMAP diet, okay? Okay. But FODMAP is an acronym, and it stands for fermentable, oligo, dye, and monosaccharides, and polyols. Okay. In a nutshell, what do those long words mean? They refer to a group of carbohydrates in our diets, certain sugars, and certain fibers that can be poorly absorbed in the small intestine. So they may linger there and then move on down the line to the large intestine where they are rapidly fermented by normal gut bacteria and they are also capable of altering the fluid balance in the gut. So if a person were to try to follow this diet, what kinds of foods would they be eliminating? And you recommend an elimination diet first, is that correct? And we should probably talk a little bit about how an elimination diet works. Yeah. So an elimination diet is also known as a learning diet. So what you do is you temporarily limit all of the suspect foods in your diet for a short period of time, and then you return them to the diet one category at a time and try to isolate the offending group of foods. Okay. So on this particular diet, what are we going to be eliminating We are going to be eliminating lactose, which is also known as milk sugar. Okay. Fructose, which is also known as fruit sugar. Uh, Polyols, which are also known as sugar alcohol. And certain fibers called oligosaccharides. Where do we find polyols? Polyols are natural sweeteners that are found in certain fruits and vegetables. And we also consume them in the form of sweeteners added to certain sugar-free foods. Mm. Uh, You can usually recognize them on the food label because they end with OL. For example, sorbitol or maltitol or uh, xylitol. Yep. I remember those uh, from 
packages of sugar-free candy and gum. Mm-hmm. So they're lower in calories. Is that why manufacturers add them, but they're still sweet? That's right. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about some of the fibers that are problematic. Where might we find those? Well, beans and legumes of all different kinds, certain nuts and seeds, and certain vegetables. Onions and garlic tend to be among the highest FODMAP vegetables. And then we also have uh, some of these oligosaccharides in grain products, Mm. especially wheat, barley, and rye. I'm really glad you brought wheat up because I remember decades ago, I'm sure it was maybe similar in your clinical practice, but, you know, maybe if you had one person or two people with a celiac disorder where they could not tolerate wheat, that would be about it. And today, you know, you, even if you go to a meeting and you sign up for a lunch menu or you go down any kind of supermarket aisle, there's a growing number of gluten-free foods. And so I have to kind of scratch my head and wonder what is going on. What is it about wheat that makes it difficult for some people to digest? Well, wheat is a complicated food and it has a number of different fractions in it, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. that are capable of causing adverse food reactions. Gluten is a protein in wheat, and that's the one that people with celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity have to avoid. Mm -hmm. But wheat also contains a type of fiber called fructans, and that is the part of the wheat that is concerning for a FODMAP diet. Hmm. Okay. So during the elimination phase, people are removing many foods from the diet that would ordinarily be under this healthy food umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, right. in your in your book, you talk about people who say, you know, gosh, I've been eating all of this healthy food and I just feel miserable. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying it's because there's some sort of malabsorption going on with some of these fruit sugars and fibers. Well, each one of the FODMAPs has its own little story to explain why it's potentially a problem. Do you want to go through them one by one? Yes, let's do. Okay. So lactose requires a digestive enzyme to be broken down to its component parts for absorption. Okay. And some people don't make enough of that enzyme. It's uh, called lactase. Right. So if, if that's the case, they may be unable to digest and absorb lactose. Fructose, on the other hand, doesn't need to be digested. It's already in in a simple sugar form. But some of us absorb it very slowly. Hmm. And I might add that that's actually a normal phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily cause irritable bowel syndrome symptoms to crop up, the mere fact that we might not absorb all the fructose in our meal. But for people with IBS, that can uh, trigger a painful cascade of symptoms. Hmm. Uh, Sugar alcohols, the polyols, the P in FODMAP, are also slowly absorbed. So malabsorbing them is common. As far as the fibers go, no one really 
can digest fibers. That's part of what makes them fibers, part of the definition of being a fiber right. is that it's a piece that is not digested. So those will predictably move on to the large intestine. So these are all normal events for the most part, with the possible exception of the insufficient lactase production. But only people with IBS seem to be bothered by by these events. Other people might just have a little extra gas and go merrily along their way. But the person with IBS may experience significant distress if they eat too much of these FODMAPs. So these particular carbohydrates that are problematic, the ones that are fermentable, I want to make sure I'm understanding this, they go through the GI tract and they become then fermentable by the normally or naturally occurring bacteria in the gut. Am I understanding Mm -hmm. that correctly? That's correct. And it's the bacteria then and an overgrowth of that bacteria that can lead to increased gas production? The production of too much gas by the bacteria, right. Yeah, okay. So you've got this book laid out where people can go through and find foods that are to be avoided under each category and you very clearly lay out a game plan for mm-hmm. removing certain foods, and then you also have a list of foods that are allowed. And how long does a person go through that elimination phase? I find that most of my patients feel better within a couple of weeks if they're going to be helped by the diet. And it, it is capable of helping about three-quarters of IBS sufferers get control of their symptoms, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, Two or three weeks is usually enough to to know whether it's going to help or not. So two weeks with the elimination diet, and then do you recommend adding one category of the FODMAP back? That's right. So the person continues on an otherwise low FODMAP diet, so you kind of extend that elimination phase underneath all of the challenges, Mm -hmm. and then we try reintroducing just one FODMAP at a time over a few days, and the patient observes symptoms. And if a flare-up of the symptoms occur, when you go back to eating a lot of that, whatever type of FODMAP we're challenging, then we've learned something. Right. That might be the food then, the trigger that you would want to persist in leaving out of the diet. That's right. Or make accommodation for it. Okay. usually necessary to completely eliminate things from your diet long-term with the FODMAP approach. The symptoms can almost always be managed with changing portion sizes and just making a few different food choices. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to get to that bucket. I think, okay. you're, talking, I think you're getting to the bucket effect, so we'll, we'll move into that next. But I just need to take one break and remind our listeners that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Patsy Katzos. And she is the author of the book called IBS, Free at Last, Change Your Carbs, Change Your Life with the FODMAP Elimination Diet. And I have to let our listeners know that you've got some incredible anecdotes in here from people who have suffered with gastrointestinal distress and then tried this elimination diet and had a life-changing experience and that they felt like they could get back into the mainstream living again. So that's quite a testament to how little changes in the diet can really make people feel better. And I think that's one of the joys of being a dietitian is helping people feel well with food. And so let's talk about this bucket effect. So 
My question about, okay, once you find something that's a trigger, do you have to give it up forever? Or is it a matter of, well, you can have a little of it, but all of these different ingredients add up over time. So mm-hmm. the next step is perhaps adding back each of the things that have been eliminated to find what, what the triggers are collectively, and then looking at this idea of a bucket. Help me understand that. Well, the bucket really is a useful idea to think about right from the start. Okay. When we try to understand the FODMAP effect, the effect of FODMAPs is cumulative or additive. And I use the bucket image in my book to represent your personal capacity to tolerate FODMAPs from all sources. So then you eliminate all the potential problem foods for a few weeks, begin reintroducing them. If you have a significant response when you reintroduce a food, say wheat and other fructans, you might wonder, gosh, am I going to have to eliminate this for the rest of my life or can I still enjoy some of those wheat products? And the bucket comes in because we, we can think about leaving room in the bucket to handle some FODMAPs. For example, if you know that you feel kind of miserable if you eat too much fructans and too much bread products, but you know you're going out for pizza that evening, Mm -hmm. Um, you have a few strategies you can use to manage that situation. One is you want to leave room in your bucket all day long by purposely choosing mostly low FODMAP foods earlier in the day. Okay. Then when you do go out for pizza, you want to minimize your portion of the pizza crust in a few different ways. So you choose thin crust pizza rather than thick crust or have fewer pieces than you might have had previously so that you can have the pizza but not the bellyache afterwards. Right. So what does that look like in terms of portion size? One piece? It's hard to generalize because everybody's response to the diet is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say about the bucket? No, I don't think so. All right. And I just want to let our listeners know that there is indeed a picture of a bucket in the book, and there are all of the different FODMAP categories that you mentioned, the lactose, the fructose, the fructans. And when I say fructans, think wheat or rye and certain vegetables, the polyols, which include certain fruits and vegetables and the sugar-free foods, and these galactans, which that's where we're looking at the dried beans and legumes. So just so people have sort of like a, you know, an idea of what kinds of foods might be listed under those categories, I think are helpful. Now, you had mentioned to me that you had recently skipped out on our National Conference of Dietitians and instead chose to go to an international celiac symposium. And I wonder if you couldn't talk a little bit about anything new that you learned there and how that all tied in with this FODMAP diet. Well, One of the biggest topics at the symposium was non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is a condition that is, I guess I would describe it as a person who has a big improvement in their symptoms on a gluten-free diet, but they don't have celiac disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's quite a large number of people that are experiencing this condition, and many of them do indeed feel better on a gluten-free diet. Well, the, the symposium was all a buzz about a couple of new studies that came out that showed that perhaps 
it's the fact that those gluten grains also contain FODMAPs that might actually be helping people feel better on the gluten-free diet. So when you say that those gluten grains contain FODMAPs, are you talking specifically about fructans? Yes. Okay. So I want to know, was there any discussion about a recognition that perhaps this sensitivity to wheat or gluten is increasing and why that is? Not at this event. There was a lot of reference to the fact that celiac disease is increasing, increasingly prevalent compared to, say, the, the 50s. Mm-hmm. Any guesses as to why that's happening? It's still a very open question. Mm. Yeah, we did a series a couple of years ago on celiac, and it was very interesting. You know, lots of unknowns, a recognition that there has been an increased prevalence of some sort of gluten intolerance, although we haven't really been able to pinpoint why. But it does seem interesting that there does seem to be an increased number of people who are suffering or seem to feel better when they give wheat up. Well, I think that as awareness has grown of the large number of people that that do have celiac disease and more and more gluten-free food is available, it seems to have really opened the door for other people to experiment with that style diet. Mm-hmm. And many of them are pleasantly surprised to find that they do indeed feel better. Yeah, I mean, I have some people tell me that when they give up eating wheat, they don't have as many joint aches. Does that make sense to you as a clinician? You know, I think that that brings up an interesting point. The non-celiac gluten sensitivity often does include some extra intestinal symptoms. In other words, things that are outside of the gut, like joint aches or rashes or fatigue, difficulty concentrating. These are some of the things people talk about in addition to GI symptoms with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And those symptoms that occur outside the gut probably are not able to be impacted by FODMAP. I think the effect of FODMAPs is really limited to the gut. Mm -hmm. So those people that do complain of joints aching and, and some of those other symptoms may indeed have more of a non-celiac gluten sensitivity than a FODMAP intolerance. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting in your book, you had mentioned that irritable bowel syndrome affects about 20% of the population. And I wonder if you're going to follow this diet to see if it does help. And that's a sizable number of people who could mm-hmm. be helped by this diet. What are people going to eat? during that elimination phase? Uh, That's a great question. I encourage people to use lactose-free milk products instead of regular milk products whenever they can because the cow's milk provides so many nutrition benefits, I believe, compared to some of the other milk alternatives, like rice milk, which doesn't have very much protein in it. There there are quite a few low-lactose and lactose-free milk products available. In the fruit department, citrus fruits and berries tend to be low in FODMAPs. So are grapes and pineapple and cantaloupe and honeydew melon. So there's quite a bit to choose from there, although portions do need to be fairly small, even of those 
savorable fruits. Mm-hmm. Grains of many kinds are available, including most of the gluten-free grains, millet, amaranth, oats, rice, potatoes, and anything made with potatoes. Products that are made with cornmeal, like corn tortillas and tortilla chips, although not actual sweet corn. Mm-hmm. There are a number, quite a large number of lower FODMAP vegetables to choose from. Uh, most of the salad vegetables are low in FODMAP. Plenty of the root vegetables that are great for roasting or grilling are low in FODMAP. Oh, that's good to uh, know. So there really is quite, oh, well, let's not forget uh, meat, fish, poultry, eggs, and oils are all completely carbohydrate-free, so there are no FODMAPs anywhere in sight in those food groups. Good. Okay. So even though this diet may seem at first to be a little overwhelming because of so many different categories of carbohydrates, it sounds like really you can eat well and be well-nourished and satisfied during that elimination phase. And then looking at the bucket concept It's not even this kind of all-or-none situation. A little bit might be tolerated, but more might set off a a cascade of events. Am I understanding that correctly? That's right. And I wonder, too, you know, what happens in an individual's life? Like, does something happen to the small intestine that somehow damages it or the large intestine that damages it that creates suddenly this insensitivity or uh, to certain foods, or a hypersensitivity to some. What do you think is going on in terms of what causes some of these digestive disorders? Thank you for asking. We don't think that food is the cause of IBS. Mm-hmm. There are some things that uh, we don't fully understand yet that make the IBS gut respond to these foods differently. For some, it may be the heightened sensitivity to pain in the abdominal cavity, in the gut. Mm-hmm. It may be that people with IBS have different bacteria in their guts from healthy people or people that don't have IBS. And it may be that the nerves and muscles of people with IBS don't work well together. And so they may have muscle cramps in their gastrointestinal tract and they may have either too fast or too slow transit time of food through their system. There are a lot of possible factors. Mm -hmm. Exposure to viruses, perhaps, too? You know, there's a growing recognition that many cases of irritable bowel syndrome are Mm post-infectious. So a fairly significant number of people that have a bout of gastroenteritis or food poisoning do end up with IBS, and sometimes that's a short-term situation, and other times it's something they have to cope with over the long haul. Well, Patsy, I want to thank you very much for opening up this discussion and helping people know that there are opportunities for improvement in how we feel. I think so often, you know, we take feeling well for granted until all of a sudden something happens, and then we realize just how important our health is. So, again, we've been speaking with Patsy Katzos. She is the author of IBS, Free at Last, Change Your Carbs, Change Your Life with the FODMAP Elimination Diet. And you are also the author of a new cookbook 
called Flavor Without FODMAP. So that helps people put this diet into action a little bit better. And I just want to let everyone know that we've been speaking with Patsy, who is based in Maine, in Portland, Maine, where she is a board member of the Maine Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she is internationally known for her research and work with patients who suffer with digestive health issues. Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri at the KOPN studio. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank Patsy again for being my guest. It was my pleasure.